0: Showtime welcome to the show stunningly beautiful day here in Kingston spent the day editing shows on the patio of a local coffee shop And from the looks of things I think I got a little bit too much sun But anyways folks tonight is a great night to jump in your most comfy chair kick your feet back Take this time for yourself You've worked hard all week and you deserve it so get the coffee going get the tea going or a beverage of choice Tonight, one of my favorite guys in the whole world returns. Alan Dale makes his triumphant return. Alan Dale serves the noted FOIA Freedom of Information Act attorneys, Jim Lazar as director of the Assassination Archives and Research Center, AARClibrary.org, and is the host of JFK Conversations, jfkconversations.com and Fantastic, fantastic guests there, folks. If you're listening right now, I encourage you to go over there and hear some of the uh, the interviews he's done with top-notch researchers. He is affiliated with the research groups JFK Lancer and CAPA, C-A-P-A, and is responsible for administration and contents at jfkjmn.com. Of course, all those links I just mentioned will be up on our website, so... Don't worry about writing them down right now. He's an administrative and research assistant to Dr. John Newman. Now what I like about Alan when he comes on the show is he always takes us into the deep end of the pool of the JFK assassination research. So I want to read you something that's pretty ominous actually, and this is from the Ark website. And it reads as follows. In an FOIA case, Freedom of Information Act case, Jim Lazar is pursuing information about an OSS double agent and convicted Nazi assassin, Werner von Alvensleben. Now, you know how I'm always harping on about how we've got to get out of Dealey Plaza and zoom out? Well, wait till you hear the rest of this, and this is why we do have to start in Dealey Plaza, but we've got to zoom out, don't get stuck there. Werner von Alvensleben, OSS convicted nasty assassin, double agent OSS, was reported by the Dallas Morning News to be in Dallas in late 1963 as a guest of, are you ready for this? The owner of the Texas School Book Depository Building, D. H. Byrd. Bird was reported to have been at von Alvensleben's Safari Hunting Preserve in Portuguese East Africa on November twenty second, 1963. Convenient. Hunting publications report, get ready for this, that von Alvensleben's favorite hunting rival was the 6.5 millimeter Mannlicher Shonar known as the World's Finest Rifle. Warren Commission member John McCloy questioned the FBI firearms experts as to whether the ammunition found in the Texas School Book Depository building could have been fired from a Mannlicher Schoner. The FBI expert was not familiar with that rifle and could not answer. Reportedly, Mannlicher Carcano and Mannlicher Schoner ammunition is virtually identical. Alan, this is a uh, pretty scary stuff. Can you comment on
1: that for us? Uh, I can tell you that the the piece to which you're referring comes largely as the re- result of the research of one of the board members of the Assassination Archives and Research Center, a brilliant attorney named Dan Alcorn. Uh, Dan has been interested in examining uh, issues relevant to the uh, the fate of Nazi intellectuals, uh, Nazi intelligence officers, people associated with um, with uh, the intelligence apparatus that had been directed against the Soviets by the Nazis during World War II, and how what happened to some of those, ultimate figures, uh, ultimate executive in particular, named um, uh, Reinhard Galen, Gehlen, G-E-H-L-E-N, uh, for people not well acquainted with um, post-World War II Nazism, who might be interested in the story of the Gehlen Group and uh, Reinhard Gehlen. He was... Um, he was a figure of consequence for hitler he was a figure of consequence as an adversary of soviet intelligence during the war and he became someone who uh benefited from uh, well let's just say he had benefactors um american benefactors but the the whole issue about you know there are many 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 books some of which are really good on uh, post-war Nazis, and the extent to which, I mean, the, the, the fact that, um, Wernher von Braun, uh, came to lead the American s- space program was, uh, really an essential pioneer with regard to, uh, the technical specifications, which resulted in the United States, um, succeeding, uh, in accomplishing President Kennedy's objective of, Landing men on the moon and returning them safely to home uh, before the end of the d- the decade, and Werner von Braun had been a you know rocket scientist um, working on behalf of Germany and found something else to do after the war, fortunately. Um, but the the thing to which you're referring uh, has you know, I don't want to over-sensationalize it. There have been a number of uh, FOIA cases, um, requests made pertaining to some Nazi stuff. Um, I could recommend um, an article by Carl Ogilvie called The Treaty at Fort Hunt, which really goes into microscopic detail about a hidden aspect of American history, largely Unknown, uh, but well worth investigating. And the thing about uh, von Alvensleben, uh, you did a pretty good job with those names, by the way. The the Manlicher Schoenauer is indeed uh, a weapon of choice, apparently, of certain big game hunters in Africa and was considered, um, you know, something that serious. Riflemen would know about and might employ in a serious scenario, whatever that might be. It's not at all to suggest that we have um, any evidence to connect von Alvensleben with the attack on President Kennedy. Uh, I can tell you and something relevant to our most recent conversation that is uh, only slightly related, and that is while I was. Um, emphasizing the importance of something called the Doolittle Report, at least that's the way it's most commonly known. Uh, The Doolittle Report, uh, authored by five um, executives in charge of of producing something at the request of President Eisenhower. And I've been informed by someone whose word I take very seriously, Professor Joan Mellon, that Eisenhower was not completely enthused about uh, the report once it was delivered to his desk. Uh, and responded accordingly, but um, the figure uh, of D.H. Byrd as the owner of the Texas School Book Depository in 1963 is an interesting person, an interesting figure, uh, and someone who had extraordinary connections in the kind of what I think can gently be referred to as the ultra-right, super-patriot world, and on at least one occasion General Jimmy, or General Jimmy Doolittle, also was on a hunting expedition with those guys at Safari Landia in uh, in Portuguese East Africa, and uh, and so this is a thing where again, like a cer- couple of other places that I could refer to, uh, people that are certainly interesting figures, and have their period of great, maybe great. Um, celebrated achievement associated with World War II. Uh, it's astounding how how the extent to which a lot of people, the, the um, strange bedfellows, or maybe it's not so strange, uh, the number of people who, you know, became acquainted with each other and who socialized. That's the word I was looking for and this uh, safari landia was uh, was one such sort of nexus location where very broad range of extraordinarily interesting people including american astronauts and others went to shoot big game for whatever reasons, I couldn't possibly speculate, but that's what that's about. Um, the, uh, the 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 thing that I connected it to with the art, in the article to which you fer, referred at the aarclibrary.org, uh, the title of the piece is CIA responds to AARC FOIA suit on CIA's 1963 study of plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And again, we're touching upon something that is not common knowledge. Uh, It comes as the result of having access to materials, which I'm quite certain most of these guys would never have believed anybody would be looking at this many years later. Um, You know about the line that Alan Dulles is quoted as having said uh, with the publication of the 26 volumes, uh, related volumes, which uh, supposedly supported the conclusion of the Warren Report, which was published in a single volume, sometimes in two. Uh, The 26 volumes, Alan Dulles said, uh, people don't read. (laughs) They don't read. And, you know, I'm not going to argue with him all that much. I would just say that some people do, and the processes by which we've gained access to things are worth knowing about, uh, worth defending, and worth investing in, because, after all, this is our history. It doesn't belong to the bad guys. the piece to which you referred is an interesting thing, and it, it is um, based upon our access to materials pertaining to a briefing by a CIA executive named Desmond Fitzgerald who had taken over from the infamous William King Harvey after Robert Kennedy had uh, responded um, harshly to certain sort of um, freelance kind of, some freewheeling that uh, Harvey had initiated at the peak of very delicate negotiations during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. So in October of 1963, Harvey is reassigned. He's in uh, Rome as the station chief there, and it's usually depicted as kind of a position of irrelevance, and, you know, we, they're... Um, there's no reason to go into too much about that, except, hey, Rome, in proximity to <laughs> organized criminal networks, uh, is something that is rather well documented. It's not exclusive to Italy, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's no shortage of it in evidence there, and the connections between the agency and organized crime from the end of World War II forward is an important chapter to be aware of um, and James Angleton's uh, relevance to some of that uh, development of those alliances and the utilization of uh, organized criminal elements to further uh, Office of Security and then agency objectives, um, dealing with labor movements and anti-communist activities in Italy. The October um, 25th, October 25th of 1963, uh, the man who had replaced William King Harvey as the chief of anti-Castro operations, which they called Task Force W, is a guy named Desmond Fitzgerald, and he is briefing the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the person officiating at the, at the meeting, uncharacteristically, is General Curtis LeMay, um, but he's the guy that, that is running the show in this particular meeting. And uh, the, re- the memo records uh, the memo of the event documenting basically what happened during this meeting. It, there's an item number 13. Uh, the memo records a briefing by Desmond Fitzgerald, CIA's head of anti-Castro operations. Fitzgerald tells the Joint Chiefs that CIA is studying the plot to kill Hitler in depth to come up with an approach to dealing with Castro. The timing of the study is contemporary to the lead-up to President Kennedy's assassination and government bodies that have investigated the JFK assassination have been concerned that such activity may have caused or been linked to the president's assassination. And so, um, you know, some of this FOIA stuff that the AARC initiated back in 2012 is relevant to that because ultimately we get a letter from a young lady associate, or employed by the agency as an information and privacy coordinator, which begins, this is, th- this is a final response to your 25th August, 2012 Freedom of Information Act, submitted on behalf of the Assassination Archives and Research Center. Four, all records on or pertaining to any plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, including but not limited to all records in any way reflecting or referencing the CIA's study in 1963 of plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler in 1963. All records on or pertaining to communications by Alan Dulles regarding plots to assassinate Adolf Uh, Adolf Hitler during his service in the Office of Policy Coordination, Office of Strategic Services or the Central Intelligence Agency all index entries or other records reflecting the search for records responsive to this request in its original or amended form including all search times used with each of the components involved and so that's what that particular piece is. there are a couple of things that you can click on, but if you visit that site, it will give you a basic update on where we are.
0: Just a couple of things about context. First of all, folks, we're speaking with Allendale, and as I said before, I love when he comes on because we go to the deep end of the pool, and that's where we need to be at this point in 2017. We're done looking at the little miniature pixels of all these little photographs looking for shooters in, in the woods and, and everywhere else. We know for a fact and I'll repeat this again in this show, that there was multiple shooters in Dealey Plaza. And we know for a fact then that that means conspiracy, but as we zoom out, we look at the owner, like Alan just said, of the Texas School Book Depository, and look where he was on November 22nd, 1963, with a double agent of the OSS and an ex-Nazi. Isn't that interesting? And he had the same type of rifle that could shoot the same type of ammunition as a man licker, carcano now just a couple of things about context william harvey during the missile crisis in
1: 1962 kennedy gave strict orders not to poke the bear he's the primary authority inside the agency on anti-castro operations uh the uh, the jm wave station is subordinate to his directives so ted shackley and the figures that we're you know the long list of handful of guys <laughs> david sanchez morales and uh, several others they're they're basically doing whatever uh, harvey wants and at the peak of the hostilities very delicate moment as you pointed out i think slightly eloquently uh, jfk and robert kennedy were concerned hey don't poke the bear and at exactly that ultimate delicate moment, perhaps the most uh, consequential negotiation in the history of human life, uh, William King Harvey, without asking for permission, took it upon himself to initiate uh, some some teams, uh, s- more than a dozen teams, uh, to go into uh, Cuba and do some uh, some things that uh, probably would not have been a great idea and fortunately Robert Kennedy learned about it and recalled those teams and was not enthused about the initiative that Mr. Harvey had taken and that's how Harvey ended up, you know, eventually um, as station chief in Rome where he drank a lot.
0: (laughs) And he was in a good place to do it. Yeah. now, this whole thing with the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, folks, I just want to reiterate, um, because Alan said it far more succinctly than I could have, the damage could have been done that it could have started World War III. I mean, he sent these teams in to do uh, crop mutilations and all kinds of other things, and uh, there was rumor that there was a team sent in to actually assassinate Castro. Had Castro got wind of this or any of these things taken place, it would have been enough reason for Castro to said, look, the Americans are invading us. Height of the missile crisis, we're launching the nukes. That's it, and that would have been World War three just like that. The other thing I want to give context to that Alan mentioned at the top of the show, and I think it's well worth um, in repeating, is something called the Galen Group. Reinhard Galen.
1: Alan, would you like to do the honors on that? Galen Group is something that is very well documented for students of World War two okay. and post. Post-war, uh, you know, the 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 enmity and antagonisms between the Soviet Union or between Russia rather and Germany is not something that started either in World War One nor in World War Two, and so uh, Reinhard Galen was uh, a, one of Hitler's favorite generals, as I understand it. Just as we have, we're interested in some other people who were among. Uh, hitler 's favorite this or that uh, and the the intelligence apparatus that the that for which Galen was responsible was really intact and was singularly anti soviet which for the benefit of people like general uh, Jimmy Doolittle and you know probably other people that we could think of uh, in during World War II and immediately thereafter during the period of Harry Truman's administration in particular they were also singularly anti-Soviet and so it made some sense to certain people to do whatever they could to facilitate the means by which the value of that that organization for lack of a better term and the intelligence that they had already gathered and their potential to continue to do so. The story of Reinhard Galen is a fascinating story. He ends up retiring from a position of authority, to say the least, in uh, West Germany. In 1968, he's given a payoff of, I think, $200,000 by the CIA, which in that year was quite a lot of money. But that's a long story, and and really, uh, with regard to my own focus, uh, you, I appreciate you pointing out that I put that piece up. Again, I would like to refer or credit Dan Alcorn without whom I would not have been able to put up any such thing and of course Jim Lazar who was responsible for initiating the litigation which resulted uh, five years later in some release of some documents which are informative um, there's there's a couple other things as long as we're on the AARC website which is aarclibrary.com uh, or <laughs> you think I'd know. It's aarclibrary.org. No
0: worries, folks. All those links will be on our website, and it is dark, yeah. by the way.
1: Yeah. Just a quick
0: word on Galen. He was a Nazi head of intelligence after the war. The United States was looking for an expert, if you will, on Soviet intelligence, and <laughs> Galen put his hand up and he said, hey, I'm an expert. But he had a bias, of course. So all that was filtered through Galen what we thought of the soviet union anyway well, it for galen and let's i don't get know
1: on to... i i don't want to just leave that i mean to say all that was filtered through galen i mean i would tell you in all honesty that we're we have reason to believe that an awful lot of what the galen produced for us after world war two was false It fed uh... this kind of hyper anti-soviet anti communist you know Fervor, um, but we—I I think that that there's a lot of there are lots of good resources. It's, I can't begin to do it justice. There are lots of good books about Reinhard Galen and his life. Uh, something that I think may be true. Uh, Socrates would not be enthused about me alluding to something that I don't know quite for certain. But I'm aware of some serious people who believe that some documentation has been discovered which puts Reinhard Galen at a residence of Alan Dulles's in 1946 in New York City, or somewhere in around uh, Manhattan, uh, at which two other people were president, present, and the two other people were Richard Helms and James Angleton, and in terms of, you know, figures who would play important roles in the development of the agency, the transition from the Office of Strategic Services into the CIA, um, and whose careers would become monumental in one way or another. Uh, those guys are very serious guys and, and um, you know we can have a long talk about the whole Nazi thing and what what the kind of white nationalist, you know defenders of property shared in common with industrialists and uh, extreme right-wing conservative elements, John Birch Society types, and uh, General Edwin Walker types, and that kind of thing. They, I, From an ideological standpoint, they may have shared quite a lot in common, for all I know.
0: Um, Let's go back to the arc, and we'll save that for another time. I didn't mean to get off subject, I just uh, wanted that's to give okay. context.
1: That's all. The, uh, there are a couple of things that I've put up, actually, maybe just since you and I spoke last week, and there are two that are really deserve a little bit of attention, so I'm happy, and I appreciate you allowing me, The opportunity to focus on a couple of things which are new, Uh, one of which was brought to me by another member of the board, a board member of uh, the AARC, Dr. Randy Robertson, and and this is something that was news to me. Uh, The title of the piece is White House Physician Autopsy Eyewitness Questions President Ford About Missing Bullet. And uh, Dr. Robertson brought to my attention that in December of 2001 and January of 2002, during an interview with United States Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery Historians, Dr. James Young, a physician who had worked with the White House physician, with White House physician Admiral George Berkeley. He, by, by the, at the time of the assassination, uh, Admiral Berkeley was President Kennedy's primary physician. Um, so this young man, Dr. James Young, worked for Admiral Berkeley uh, during the Kennedy administration, and he related during these two interviews um, that during the autopsy, President Kennedy's autopsy, he'd been given a bullet in an envelope by White House Medical Corpsman Chief Petty Officer Thomas Mills after his return from the White House garage to retrieve skull fragments from the rear of the limousine. Young described this bullet as jacketed, straight, but with a bent tip, and visually close in diameter to CE399. That's the proverbial magic bullet, Um, which he estimated to be one-half centimeter. Dr. Young voiced his concerns to the interviewers that, again, the interviews took place in 2001-2002, That he had never seen any reference to it in the Warren Commission investigation. The last thing he remembers is that he gave the envelope containing the bullet with the bent tip to Dr. Humes, the head autopsy pathologist, and that the bullet was never seen or documented thereafter. Uh, Dr. Young had embarked on his own investigation approximately one year prior to being interviewed by the Navy historians. His uneasiness over this point had caused him to reach out to President Gerald Ford the last living member of the Warren Commission, in December of 2000 in an effort to find the final disposition of this bullet and see if President Ford knew anything about it, and President Ford did indeed reply. After reading the article on the Navy Live website and the entire transcript of his interview obtained by FOIA request, AARC board member Randolph Robertson, MD, contacted the Ford Library to see if Dr. Young had indeed written to the ex-president in an effort to corroborate his statements made to Navy interviewers. He had, and his letter, including his recollection of a missing bullet with a bent tip, had preceded his same recollection to Navy historians one year later, in December of 2001. Um, So, short version here, in terms of what this means is, um, here's documentation that I find that uh, a number of people find credible. Uh, We've put up relevant documents to corroborate the story that we're representing here of James M. Young, M.D. We have also put up Gerald Ford's response to Dr. Young's letter to him, two-page letter, in which he described his experience. And then, in addition to that, I've put up a very relevant, I think a really genuinely relevant uh, piece from uh, Rex um, Bradford's fantastic Mary Farrell Foundation website, and this is a short piece uh, which might contain some of the most important stuff that I'll ever refer to in conversation with you. Um, It's called The Missing Physician. Uh, The Warren Commission was faced with contradictions in the medical evidence. The Parkland Hospital doctors who treated the mortally wounded president described an entrance wound in the throat and a large occipital rearward wound in Kennedy's head. The autopsy doctors declared that the throat wound to be one of that they declared the throat wound to be one of exit and drawings they produced of Kennedy's head wound showed it to be largely on the right side. At issue in these varying descriptions is whether shots came from the front or the rear. Obviously, you know, the government's position is always in absolutely been that there was only one person firing at President Kennedy and that person was Lee Oswald and he was on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository behind the limousine. Um, One man was best suited to address these conflicting accounts, the president's personal physician, Dr. George Berkeley. Berkeley rode in the Dallas motorcade, was present at at Parkland Hospital rode Air Force One to Washington with the body and was present at the autopsy. He's the only person about whom all of that is true. By some accounts, running the autopsy. Uh, He signed the White House death certificate, wrote verified on a face sheet, created during the autopsy, and took physical possession of JFK's brain and tissue slides. And there's quite a lot to that story that is largely un. circulated, I guess. Uh, There are lots of mythologies. The Warren Commission never interviewed him, (laughs) because after all, he was in the motorcade, he was at Parkland in the the operating theater of the emergency room one, and he was elsewhere uh, thereafter, including on the plane in the company of the body, and he was uh, there acting as a liaison between Robert Kennedy, I think, on the 19th floor and the autopsy wherever it was being taking place so naturally the Warren Commission did not think he would be an interesting subject worthy of their attention though Berkeley was continually mentioned by other Commission witnesses the only statements from the doctor himself to appear to, in the Warren commissions 26 volumes is CE 1126 a report Berkeley wrote two days before the Commission was announced I've got that report in 1976 Berkeley's lawyer William Eilick, contacted Richard Sprague of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, saying that his client had information that, in quotes, others beside Oswald must have participated. Sprague was ousted days later and the reconstituted HSCA and its medical panel never took Berkeley's testimony. Instead, a short phone contact the following year was followed up yet months later when the HSCA was done with all its public medical presentations with a strange affidavit signed by Berkeley. The affidavit in which Berkeley attested to his constant presence with Kennedy's body from Parkland Hospital on seemed almost solely devoted to refuting David Lifton's as yet unpublished best evidence. The ARRB in the mid-1990s contacted the family of the now-then-deceased Berkeley and initially received verbal permission to obtain the lawyer Eilig's files, but Berkeley's daughter subsequently changed her mind and in the end declined to sign the necessary waiver. Questions abound about Berkeley's handling of the now-missing brain of JFK, his role at the autopsy, and his involvement in the 1965 transfer of autopsy materials into the Kennedy family's hands. Did the Warren Commission and HSCA avoid Berkeley because they were afraid of what he would say. In a 1967 oral history, Berkeley was asked whether he agreed with the Warren Commission's view on the number of shots. Berkeley's reply, I would not care to be quoted on that.
0: The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. www.nightfrightshow.com Alan Dale, folks, none better, none better. Deep end of the pool. I bet you a lot of you listening right now and watching have never heard this information before. AARC.org. And Alan's bringing all this information for us tonight. What's your perspective, Alan? What do you think happened to the brain? We'll start there. And then I we'll,
1: think it was we'll very it. likely, well, uh, there, there are two areas. Uh, one, I'm not qualified to address. One has to do with the autopsy and the immediate aftermath of the autopsy and what would be standard operating procedure to be able to uh, put the brain in formaldehyde and have it congeal sufficiently that it could be sliced in bullet um, paths could be tracked. Um, There's been a lot of controversy about whether uh, President Kennedy's brain, how much of it was intact, how much of it was actually missing, which I think probably represented a significant percentage, at least with regard to the right hemisphere. And there's also controversy about whether uh, a different brain could have been, you know, there's all kinds of discussion, I'll use that word, uh, about whether the brain went missing immediately, was replaced by something else, some other brain, all of that. I'm not qualified to address that. I can tell you that it's confusing. Uh, Lots of things are. That particular area is not something that I've focused on. I I personally feel like it's one of the areas that for me is not resolved sufficiently well for me to have an opinion about it. I'm not sufficiently informed. I think that there is controversy about it which is not illegitimate. But the area that that is also important is the thing to which the article referred uh, in 1965 where President Kennedy's body – well, I'll tell you what – well, the story that we have is that the, the grave site was moved and redesigned, and it was moved further down the hill, and it was built up in concrete, and it includes, you know, it's essentially uh, the site as it exists today. There have been some other embellishments to the monument to him, and um, and stuff like that, where the eternal flame burns. Um, But they did, apparently, there are certainly lots of photographs to this effect, and there have been reports that Robert Kennedy was present as the you know, the head of the family, representing the family's interests, at the time that the original grave site was opened. Uh, it is possible, uh, I guess I'll put it like that, it's possible to me that materials taken from the autopsy by Admiral Berkeley and presented to Robert Kennedy may have been um, placed with President Kennedy's remains at that point. I can tell you that only speculation of uh, some some of the people that are concerned about all of these things have noted that the people who knew President Kennedy best and loved him the most knew that he loved the sea. And the fact that um, his son was not, Buried, they recovered JFK Jr. and his wife and his sister-in-law. Uh, they did indeed recover the bodies. They did not bury uh, John Jr. at uh, Arlington. He was buried at sea. And uh, you know, it, it is only speculation, and it's not worth investing in. That you know, I wonder if President Kennedy is at Arlington at all. But. Um, that's my answer to your question,
0: folks. Alan Dale's joining us tonight, and we're talking about the deep end of the pool. And uh, he's bringing forth some new information that we haven't been aware of before, and uh, it's astounding, absolutely astounding. Alan, in, from your perspective, will we ever know in our lifetime what the full master plan was, or are we just going to be little bit of snippets here, a little bit of snippets there? In other words. We look at Lincoln's assassination all these years later, and we've pretty got pretty well got a good idea what happened. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where we'll have that same confirmation? Well, of the Kennedy assassination. Uh,
1: if you if you're using the word confirmation to say, hey, will we ever be told that what we think happened actually happened, and that way we'll feel better? I would say that that's not the way I'm I'm framing it. I think that there is the potential to learn things to which we have never had access. And and without major pieces of a puzzle, you cannot ultimately assemble the puzzle in any kind of complete manner. But what we do have is something that has emerged over a period of all of these decades. We've, what has emerged is... Uh, a framework which becomes increasingly visible thanks to the work of a lot of um, really dedicated and disciplined and extraordinary scholars. Um, And the framework, you know, uh, is subject to interpretation. But the framework includes things like to give you just a big picture, something simple that people can Sink their teeth into uh, it was not known uh, at the time of the assassination that the that before President Kennedy was elected to the office that uh, the CIA was engaged in very serious a- attempts to assassinate foreign leaders, and that at least with regard to uh, Fidel Castro they had employed, and they are the ones the 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 program was initiated. By the agency, uh, not the other way around. They approached Ella very serious um, top figures in organized crime. Uh, as usual, using a cutout. Uh, I've been working on something with my dear friend, the ultimate scholar, um, I should call him Professor Malcolm Blunt. Um, I've been working on something very interesting that he's, we're going to have something up on it soon about the manner by which the agency can legally deny uh, an association or an affiliation or uh, employing uh, a particular figure. And the method that is used, we've you know we're familiar with using cutouts uh, for this and that, and most people probably have a sense of what that means. But I'm I'm holding uh, five pages of documents that I received recently. And the message, I'll share this with you. The message from Malcolm is this should really be posted somewhere because it exposes the machinations of the agency when trying to hide individuals utilized, employed by them. Ergo, when is an employee not an employee? Answer, when he is liaison. So, as opposed to the kind of thing that we're involved in taking a very granular, subatomic, you know, look, uh, putting the subatomic microscope on, uh, say, for instance, the Oswald defection scene. Uh, what we are and that the extent to which you know we're dealing with probably what I'm not uncomfortable suggesting are figures who are living deep cover deep integrated cover that their primary affiliation is with the agency they begin their career working with the agency then they are suddenly working for the state Department and so they spend uh, decades working for the state Department and then afterwards wouldn't you know it they go back and work for the agency before they are ultimately retired from government service so deep Integrated cover is one sort of classification that we have a better sense of now than people did probably in, you know, in 1964 when the Warren Commission produced its report. But there's this also, there's this other mechanism that is uh, a properly utilized method by which a person can be um, used. I'll put it like that. Uh, And not in the traditional sense of being an asset, but a person that can be used for operational objectives who is characterized in documentation as a liaison. And so because liaison has a different legal meaning when they are responding to a government inquiry saying, hey, did some guy named Lee Oswald ever work for the CIA? They can say, are you kidding? Absolutely not. And I'm not saying Oswald was liaison. I'm, I'm just using that as an obvious example. So the, the technicalities of the way the agency, can you know, ha- had to work to function as a secret organization, uh, that's stuff that emerges over decades that we have a better sense of. We've learned and we are learning more every day about A greater number of people. We're learning greater detail about a a larger number of people who are on the playing field. And, you know, if uh, if the JFK research community needs to be admonished, I'm certainly not, you know, I don't have the stature nor the authority to do so, but I would say that um, jumping to conclusions prematurely is harmful and that when this is a work in progress uh... and we are making measurable progress the moment that to which i always refer which you can communicate with really pretty succinctly to people who are casually interested in the subject why would anybody think the cia was involved in any way not to say necessarily responsible but involved in any way with something relevant to president kennedy's assassination November 3rd, 1994, Washington Post reporter and a, an active duty, uh, career, and senior uh, Army Intelligence, strate- uh, um, uh, U.S. Army Strategic strategic Intelligence Cryptologic Analyst go to visit former counterintelligence liaison desk officer named Jane Roman. And when they walk in her house on November 3rd, 1994, we are all in one place in relation to Dallas. And when they walk out of her house, house, we were in a different place. These are two of the smartest people I've ever known in my life, and I know both of them well. Uh, Jeff Morley was a Washington Post reporter at the time, Uh, my friend Dr. John Newman, a person uh, I I share responsibility with uh, wonderful assistant uh, Jay Harvey, who's been with Dr. Newman for 25 years. Uh, and we you know, we're working on his volume three right now, which is I think has the potential to be um <laughs> noteworthy. Uh, oh no,
0: you're not getting away with that. Give us some juice. Oh yeah, no I'm, no, no, I'm just a little bit just a little space. A little, taste, a little there sprinkle. Are,
1: there are constraints. Uh the thing that I wanna get to with regard to something that is, you know, tangible that you can hold in your hand. Jane Romans is a a counterintelligence liaison desk officer who was revealed through uh, the analysis by Jeff Morley and Dr. Newman is having signed off on false and misleading information in response to a pre-assassination inquiry from the Mexico City station about Lee Oswald in Mexico City late September early October of 1963 and she's one of the officers um, who signed off on the information that was sent in response to this inquiry, which was false and misleading, and um, seems perhaps to have been intentionally misleading. It's not an indictment of absolutely everybody who's, who's in, whose participation is indicated by the, these exchange of documents, but it raises very serious questions about the whole Mexico City thing, with, which Malcolm Blunt refers to as a swamp. And when Dr. Newman took her chronologically, lead, led her up to the point where that, that response to the Mexico City station was authorized, in part because of her authorization. She signed off saying, yep, that's right. 31 years later, Dr. Newman asked her, why'd you do that? And she said, I'm signing off on something that's not true. And he said, well, what's your interpretation of this? There doesn't necessarily have to be a sinister explanation, but you know, it's one thing if I say to you, you do not have a need to know. It's another thing if I say, here's some information in response to your question, which I know is misleading. So then he asked her the ultimate question, which changed our place in relation to Dallas. He said, uh, I guess the thing I'm asking you to address head-on here is, does this indicate to you an operational interest in Oswald six weeks prior to the assassination? And she said, yes, to me it indicates a keen interest held very closely on a need-to-know basis. A keen interest held very closely on a need-to-know basis. She's referring to the... Byzantine labyrinth around her, the counterintelligence staff, the Office of Security, the a, a, a figure in the Western Hemisphere Division who was clearly out of the loop, the dead center of the most protected, most densely insulated part of the CIA at the peak of the Cold War. Something is going on where some people are in the know and some people are Are not, and it involves someone named Lee Oswald six weeks prior to the assassination. Those two guys walked out of that house and they did not get as far as the street. You talk about a cinematic moment. You and I talk all the time about how some of this stuff should be in a movie, right? God bless Oliver Stone for doing what he did because it led to the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. Without him, it wouldn't have happened. I suspect that without Dr. Newman's influence on the final script, It might not have happened because I suspect the film might not have been as effective if we hadn't benefited from Dr. Newman's influence as a consultant on the set while it was being written and while it was being shot. Those two guys looked at each other and said, what just happened in there?
0: Okay, let me ask you this before we get too far off track. Why? Why did they have an operational interest in Lee Harvey Oswald? we know that?
1: This is a question that only educated speculation uh, is available to us, because when you're, you know, I would refer you to uh, three or four vital um, resources. Um, the first is Dr. N- well, good God. Uh, all right, five. The first is... Uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott's books, um, Deep Politics and the Je- De- Death of JFK and Deep Politics 2, which is a collection of essays from the 90s. Deep Politics and the Death of JFK and Deep Politics by, uh, 2 by Professor Peter Dale Scott. JFK and, and our, uh, Oswald and the CIA, uh, originally published 1995, uh, updated and expanded in 2008 by Dr. John Newman. 2008 edition of Dr. John Newman's book, Oswald and the CIA. Uh, Some couple of 2008, also 2008, I think, uh, Jeff Morley's book, Our Men in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA, very relevant to our focus on Mexico City. And finally, um, my friend, the great brilliant uh, human rights attorney who spends every day of his life trying to improve the lives of other people who might otherwise not have legal representation. Bill Simpich has a book that is available for free at the Mary Farrell Foundation um, and that's uh, that's called State Secret. Um, Mary Farrell is Mary Farrell, F-E-R-R-E-L-L dot org. And if you go to Mary dot org and search State Secret, you'll find a book uh, written by Bill Simpich, which is subtitled um, Wiretaps, uh, Double Agents in the Framing of Lee Oswald. Those are valuable, I would say invaluable places to begin if you want to start dealing with Mexico City.
0: Do you think Lee Oswald knew he was of operational
1: interest to the CIA? I have no way of knowing if he had any awareness whatsoever of the agency being involved or interested or monitoring or anything. See, people think that they know the way things work because they watch TV or because, you know, they see in movies. A low-level human resource, innately uh, someone who has been invested in as a military figure can be used by different agencies, different elements of the government without ever having any reason to know who is using him or, or how, and certainly never having to know big picture things. So when people who pretend that they, are Le- they were Lee Oswald's girlfriend, and then make up a whole hell of a lot of stories. Uh, about, uh, you know, Lee knew that uh, the person that he was dealing with as Maurice Bishop was really named David Atlee Phillips and stuff like this. It's imbecilic. It's laughable. It's preposterous. Um, the, uh, it's entirely possible that Oswald may have known that he was had a relationship as an informant working in some capacity in relation to for pay by the FBI. That's a possibility. It's also possible that um, that the Office of Naval Intelligence would have had an interest in him. I told you a long time ago that once I became aware of a guy named John Baker, I think it was John Baker, he was the chief of station in Tokyo when uh, Oswald was at Atsugi, um, I, I became very alarmed when I learned that he died in 1964 while the Warren Commission was... S- seated and doing their work, if that's what you want to call it, and that's not good. You know, it's just a drag, um, because if the agency had an interest, well, first of all, the agency would have had an office of some kind, some kind of presence at Atsugi. It's where, you know, the, the U-2 plane was a, a CIA project, so obviously, but if somebody is getting paid like a disbursements officer named Wilcoxon claimed that Oswald was being paid with his own crypt. Um, if somebody's getting paid, it's going through the primary station, and that's something that maybe the station chief would have had some documentation about, but we can't talk to him, and we nobody ever interviewed him, and you know he's dead in 1964, and I think that's a drag. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to get all you know, hot and bothered. Uh, I, I want to share something with you very briefly because I know we're getting close on time, but um, I wrote an introduction... Two yeah, I wrote an introduction to something that we did... Uh, Dr. I was allowed to participate in an event at uh, uh, Virginia Military Institute Center for uh, Leadership and Ethics, and Dr. Newman was one of the principal speakers. Um, and I said this, I said, um, Our story is a journey which begins before November 22, 1963. It encompasses the Cold War and its origins, examines the prevailing ideologies during John Kennedy's years of public service, the context and meaning of his abrupt and consequential death. There are many steps along the way, and it is by no means a clear path. Um, there are many difficulties in challenging our government's official positions, or our government's official explanations for the crime. Uh, there are false leads, mythologies, misdirections, alleged facts, deceptions, obstructions, charlatans and frauds. And that's what befalls uh, what may be o- only loosely referred to as the JFK assassination research community.
0: Alan's a drummer, folks. Listen to that timing. Right right as the music started, Alan was finished. Alan, thanks so much, buddy, for filling in again, because our original guest, folks, Southern uh, Florida flooded yep. electricity. 7.5 million people without electricity. He couldn't make it. Alan filled in just like that. He's a super trooper. Thanks so much, Alan. You. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. We'll see you all later.